Alhamdulillah, after introducing our session last week, if you remember, we promised that this would be the week where we will start our journey through the principles from the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're going to cover all in all about 22 principles. So I'm not too sure when we're going to end the series, how many weeks it's going to take, but I don't think it will be uh, less than maybe perhaps uh, three months, inshallah ta'ala, perhaps less if Allah places barakah in the time and effort. And what we're going to do is that we're going to divide these 22 principles under four categories. Please take note of it. The first category of principles will be titled as Quranic principles before marriage. Quranic principles for a couple before they marry. So these are going to be matters of appreciation. Matters to create an internal shift with respect to your approach towards marriage. We will cover four principles there. Then we will take the second category of principles, which will be principles from the Qur'an for during the course of your marriage. So these are principles to ensure that there is constant growth and flourishing of your marriage. Then when we finish with those, we're going to go to the third bundle of principles, which is Quranic principles for marriage when problems arise. And then we will conclude the series by discussing another three or so principles, Quranic principles if there is a situation of divorce. So we have the entire journey covered by the permission of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So let us begin with principle number one. The fact that there's only maybe six brothers who are writing, is it an indication that brothers here feel that they, are, uh, they have their marriages on lock, mashallah, there is no further room for improvement? Congratulations. Uh, maybe you should be sat here because I need advice from you. But the reality is that all of our marriages require improvement and reparation and advice, especially when it is coming from the book of Allah. So as an ethic and as a rule, brothers and sisters, really bring with you some sort of documentation, a pen, a paper. It's like someone who is going fishing and he doesn't bring with him a rod. What are you doing there? Right, so you've come to a gathering of knowledge and information. At least try to bring with you a form of documentation. Tayyip, principle number one. This is coming under which category, Rubel? Quranic principles before marriage, exactly. The most important principle is the ayah from Surah Al-Dhariyat, principle number one, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّةِ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ Allah said, I did not create jinn kind and mankind only for the purpose of them to worship me. This is the mother of all principles in the Qur'an. Every aspect of life can be traced back to this maqsad, this grand objecti objective of worshipping Allah. Including our study of marriage, every other principle of marriage that we shall cover bi-idhnillahi ta'ala can, be trans uh, can be traced back to this principle. The objective of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And seeing marriage through this light through this lens we have been tested by allah almighty on this earth with the test of worshiping him 
Allah said, الذي خلق الموت والحياة ليبلوكم أيكم أحسن عملا. He was the one who created life and death to test you. Which of you will be best indeed? So it's a test. Who will worship Allah and who will abstain? That's the purpose of life. And Allah Jalla Jalaluhu said in Surah Al-Insan, إِنَّا خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ مِن نُطْفَةٍ أَمْشَاجٍ نَبْتَلِيهِ We have created man from a drop of mixed fluid so that we may test him. Our existence is defined by this test, a test of ibadah, of our worship of Allah, Jalla Jalaluhu. And ibadah is of two types. When we say worship in the religion of Islam, it encompasses two broad headings. There is al-ibadatul khasa, a specific type of worship. Or you may call it a listed act of worship. These are the acts of worship that are heavily regulated by the Sharia of Islam. Like, for example, salah and siyam and zakah and hajj, the five pillars, and the rulings that branch out from the five pillars of Islam. These are listed acts of worship. They are specific and they are heavily regulated by the Sharia. Then you have a second category of worship, which is what? Al-ibadatul amma The general acts of worship. These cover things like eating, drinking, sleeping, interacting with people. You can say these are the unlisted acts of worship that are not so heavily regulated by the Sharia. But become acts of worship if there is the correct, correct what? The correct niyyah, the correct intention attached to them. So what have we established so far? We have established that the term ibadah worship in the religion of Islam is a broad umbrella. It's a comprehensive term that canopies over every aspect of life. This is our understanding of ibadah. And that is why Allah Jalla Jalaluhu said, قُلْ Say to the people, O Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, إِنَّ صَلَاتِي My prayer, وَنُسُكِي My sacrifice, وَمَحْيَايَ And my life, وَمَمَاتِي And my death, لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ They are all for Allah, the Lord of the world. So this term ibadah can cover everything. And Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah has offered a beautiful definition with respect to this term ibadah, worship. This relationship that defines you and Allah. What is the definition of it? He says in his book Al-Ubudiyya, he says Al-Ibadah worship is the following. Al-Ibadah hiya ismun jami'un li kulli ma yuhibbuhu Allahu wa yardahu min al-aqwali wal-a'mali al-batinati wal-zahira. He said Al-Ibadah worship is a comprehensive term that covers every verbal and physical action, whether inward or outward, those actions that are pleasing to Allah and beloved to Him. What is the definition? He says worship is a comprehensive term that covers everything that is beloved to Allah and pleasing to Him, whether verbal or physical, and whether inward or outward. This is ibadah. Therefore, ibadah, so long as it covers 
Or let us say this, therefore your actions, so long as they meet two conditions, sincerity and compliance to the prophetic way, this action becomes an act of ibadah worship that is pleasing to Allah Jalla Jalla Why am I mentioning this entire introduction and understanding about ibadah? Just to say the following, you and I are to see the institution of marriage under the exact same light. It is an act of worship that is pleasing to Allah Jalla Jalla do you understand this, brothers and sisters? Do you see why we went through this entire breakdown? To get to this one point. Marriage is not to be seen like a normal relationship, something you do because everybody else does it. It is primarily an act of worship. Therefore, a person who honors his or her marriage is fulfilling part of their purpose of existence, and that is the worship of Allah. And therefore, they are establishing a case for Jannah in the hereafter. And similarly, someone who dishonors their marriage and neglects it and treats it like any other relationship is failing with respect to their purpose of existence, the worship of Allah, and is ruining their prospect before their Lord on the Day of Judgment. It's an act of worship. The fact that the Sharia of Islam has regulated many parts of marriage shows you it's not just an average relationship, it is worship. Let me give you examples of what the Sharia has to say about its marriage, and then you tell me whether it's an act of worship or not. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, لا تنكحوا الأيم حتى تستأمر ولا تنكحوا البكر حتى تستأذن That the woman who has not been uh, the woman who has been previously married, she is not to be given in marriage only after she is consulted. And a virgin girl, she is not to be given in marriage only after she has given her permission. Look at how the Sharia has to say something about that. When it comes to the matters of dowry, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs it in Surah An-Nisa and tells you how the dowry should be. When it comes to proposing the religion has to say something about that. None of you should propose to a woman if you come to know that your brother has already proposed to her. Until he leaves the proposal or he gives you permission. The Sharia has to say something about that as well. And then the Prophet said, there is no marriage that can happen only if there is a male guardian present, a wali, and two credible witnesses to see it. And then when you look, subhanAllah, into the rules of divorce, so many rules, how to do it, when to do it, when not to do it. Ya ayyuhan nabi, O Prophet, idha talaktum nisa tell the Muslims, when you come to divorce your wives, Divorce them during their prescribed waiting periods and count it accurately. Allahu Akbar to the rest of the ayah giving the details. Therefore, since our religion has so much to say about marriage from beginning right till its end, shows you that it is what? It is what, my brothers? It is an act of worship. It is an act of ibadah. 
what is the fruit of knowing all of this? What is the fruit of passing your marriage through this first principle of I have only created jinkind and mankind so that they may worship me? Like I said, this principle here is not about something necessarily you do. It's about creating a, a shift, seeing your marriage through the lens of worship. What is the fruit of seeing your marriage as an act of worship, you may ask me. And I say to you, there are two key treasures that you reap when you see your marriage as an act of worship. The first of them is that you will not allow any of the pains and the sufferings or joys and pleasure of marriage to go to waste. What does that mean? Much like a laborer who was working long and grueling hours, say, at a factory, but he is working for free, similarly, a married man or a woman, if they don't see their marriage as an act of worship, and therefore they're missing out on the correct intention, they are missing out on so many rewards, and they are also working for what? They are working for free. The things that you are otherwise doing as a married man and as a married woman, paying the bills and you're taking care of the rent and you're cleaning the home and you're taking care of the children, you're preparing the food and you're, you're being there for the needs of your spouse. The things that you are otherwise doing, why, why do it without a reward? The suffering that comes with some of the marriages, why take that suffering for free without ajr? And the pleasures that come with marriage, why enjoy them without a reward? And all of that can change so long as you see marriage as an act of worship. That's the first fruit of seeing marriage as an act of worship. You get rewarded in everything that you would otherwise be doing in everyday life. And that's why one of our predecessors, Ibn Abi Jamra, he said, وَدِدْتُ أَنَّهُ كَانَ مِنَ الْفُقَهَاءِ مَنْ لَيْسَ لَهُ شُغْلٌ إِلَّا أَنْ يُعَلِّمَ النَّاسَ مَقَاصِدَهُمْ فِي أَعْمَالِهِمْ he said, I wish that there could be a group of scholars who have no objective in life other than to sit and to teach people the art of intention setting. I wish. Do you see what he is saying? And then he goes on to say, because so many people have failed in life simply because they don't know how to set the correct intention. So why work for free? You're already doing what you need to do as a married man or a woman. So why allow it to go to waste without ajr, without reward, and counting in the hereafter, where it matters the most? And I love the words of some of the scholars who said this. Try to understand it. They say, عِبَادَاتُ أَهْلِ الْغَفْلَةِ عَادَاتُ وَعَادَاتُ أَهْلِ الْيَقَظَةِ عِبَادَاتُ They say, the worship of the absent-minded people are habits. And the habits of the present-minded people are worship. Did you understand that? Huh? The worship of the absent-minded people, they're just habits. So they're praying, and they're fasting, and they're doing what they need to do as Muslims, but because they're absent-minded, it's just become mechanical, it's become a habit, and so the reward is not so great. It's just a habit. So the worship of the absent-minded, they are habits. And then on the flip side, what do they say? 
the habits of the present-minded, they are what? Worship. So they are habits. They eat and they drink and they buy and they sell. They have marital relations. They do what everybody else does in their life. But because they are present-minded, they are intentional in what they do, huh? it is transformed into an act of worship. So this is the first fruit of seeing your marriage uh, as an act of worship. You unlock new opportunities of reward for things that you are already doing. And subhanAllah, listen to these hadith, which shows you the beauty of our religion and how it doesn't limit worship to salah and fasting and a particular demographic in a mosque or Mecca or Medina. It comes into your everyday life. Even if you are not a scholar, even if you have not memorized Quran, it just requires the correct intention. Listen to these narrations I share with you. The Prophet ﷺ said, in the hadith which Muslim narrates on the authority of Abu Huraira, he said, Dinarun anfaqtahu fi sabilillah. Wa dinarun anfaqtahu fi raqabah. Wa dinarun tasaddaqta bihi ala miskin. Wa dinarun anfaqtahu ala ahlik. A'azamuha ajra alladhi anfaqtahu ala ahlik. Subhanallah. Ajeeb. Our religion. He said, a dinar, this was the currency of the Arabs, a dinar that you spend in the path of Allah or a dinar that you spend to free a slave or a dinar that you spend on a poor person or a dinar that you spend on your family he said the one that will yield the greatest reward in the eyes of Allah is the dinar that you spend on your family la ilaha illallah doesn't this give you so much context to the issue of the rising cost of living that we're experiencing here in the UK? How it's difficult now to make ends meet and the demands of the family seem a lot more difficult to meet. And look at how their religion is saying, if you see marriage as an act of worship, this money that you are spending, the bills that you are paying, the shopping that you're bringing home, the stipend that you're giving to family, it's a sadaqah, and it's the greatest sadaqah, greater than freeing a slave, greater than giving in charity, greater than it being in the path of Allah. And all of these are virtuous acts as well. Tayyib, that's hadith number one. Hadith number two, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa he said to Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, the hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, إِنَّكَ لَن تُنْفِقَ نَفَقَةً تَبْتَغِي بِهَا وَجْهَ اللَّهِ إِلَّا أُجِرْتَ عَلَيْهَا حَتَّى مَا تَجْعَلُ فِي فِيِّ مُرْعَتِكَ Anything that you give in charity, intending the pleasure of Allah, will be documented for you as a reward, including that food that you place in the mouth of your wife. It's an act of worship. And the hadith in Sahih Muslim on the authority of Abu Dhar, وَفِي بُضْعِ أَحَدِكُمْ صَدَقَةً He said, even when you engage in marital relations with your spouse, this is a charity that you've given in the path of Allah. It's a sadaqah, sexual intimacy, according to the Prophet when it is in the halal, it's a sadaqah. And the companions, they said, Ya Rasulullah, Ya'ti ahaduna shahwatah wa yakunu lahu fiha ajr. Messenger of Allah, we're, we're fulfilling our carnal desires and you're saying we're getting rewarded for it. 
And he said, أَرَأَيْتُمْ لَوْ وَضَعَهَا فِي حَرَامٍ أَكَانَ عَلَيْهِ وَزِرٍ فَكَذَلِكَ لَوْ وَضَعَهَا فِي الْحَلَالِ كَانَ لَهُ أَجْرٍ He said, is it not that if he was to fulfill his desire in a prohibited way, he would be sinful? Likewise, if he fulfills his desire in that which is allowed, he is rewarded. So our religion is different. Our religion is very different. For example, the old church fathers, the Christian religion, that saw sexual intimacy even when it is uh, in the, within the uh, uh, fold of marriage, they see it as something inherently evil or, or filthy or something that should be abstained from. And this didn't change only until maybe the revolution in the, in the 16th century. Up until that, look at the works of people like Tertullian and Ambrose. They said that we prefer to see the extinction of the human race rather than the world populated through sexual intercourse. We'd rather everyone die than people having to carry that out, even if they're married. And you have uh, the likes of Origen, who famously castrated himself before his ordination. And Thomas Aquinas and others of these famous names that are celebrated in the West, look at what their position was towards these things. It was filthy and dirty and evil and should be abstained from. They all pretty much said, the early church fathers, that living a celibate life is better than having any type of contact with a woman. Our religion doesn't say that. Our religion says your intimacy with your wife is an act of worship that is pleasing to Allah. Consider it a charity on your scales. Why am I sharing with you, with you these narrations? Remember the point? What's the point that we're making, Ishma? Yeah, this is coming under which heading? I want to say it again? Yeah, that marriage is an act of worship. And we said, what is the fruit of seeing marriage as an act of worship? We said, number one, what is it? Nothing goes to waste. Goes to waste. The difficulties of marriage and the joys of marriage, not just the difficulties, the joys of marriage, none of it goes to waste. What's the second fruit? You help me out, brothers. What do you think a second fruit is? Of seeing marriage as an act of worship. What would it do for you? What will it help you with? Patience. patience. Exactly. It will help you with patience. All of a sudden, the way that you view marriage has been elevated from something mundane and trivial and normal to something that is divine. And therefore, that unlocks brand new horizons of subtle patience. Because you're no longer seeing this as something that I've got to do and everybody else is doing it, God help me. You're seeing this as an act of worship that involves pleasing Allah, glorifying Allah, magnifying your Lord. So it gives you huge amounts of patience and unlocks brand new reserves. It does. If you wanted to summarize the whole process of marriage in one word, before, during and after, uh, that word would be sabr patience. When you are looking for a spouse, why for a husband? And it sometimes takes you months, sometimes years, until the correct person arrives in your life. It requires patience. And to not go knocking on the doors of the prohibited. If you go to a family and they're rejecting you left, right, and center, that requires patience. That can be very demoralizing. When you finally find the right person, and they're stipulating these massive dowries that you just don't have, it requires patience. Sabr. So, and then when your wife is bickering with your mom, they just can't get along, 
What does that require from you? Patience, how much, so much sabr. And then when one spouse is trying to accommodate the other with respect to their mood, with respect to their poverty, with respect to intimacy that they may not be feeling at the time, they try to accommodate for the other, they have patience, that requires patience, sabr. When giving up intimacy that evening to accommodate for your spouse who is not up for it, that requires sabr patience. Raising righteous children within an environment which every institution is looking to snatch away your child from you, physically or ideologically or both, what does that require? Requires patience. Spending on your family at a time of inflation, what does that require? Sabr, patience. Being a homemaker requires patience at a time when everyone is convincing you that you've had to sacrifice the real ambitions in life and now you are sat at home doing what? To combat that narrative as a Muslim woman, that requires patience. And then if there's going to be a divorce, subhanAllah, patience, sabr. Costly process in many cases. To not defame your wife or your husband post-divorce requires patience. To not ridicule one another, slander one another, speak ill of one another after you've taken your separate ways requires patience. To not use your children as a weapon against your wife or husband by preventing them from seeing their parent requires patience. And what happens when you see marriage under the lens of worship, it opens up a new capability that you never knew you had. To be patient and res resilient and to cope with all of the difficulties that come with some marriages. So um, we promised that we will conclude each principle uh, with a suggested uh, list of actions that can be done to put it into practice and this one here I have only created jinn kind and mankind so that they may worship me how can that be plugged into our marriages practically speaking the first thing that we can do is not allow the intention to fall asleep don't allow your niya to ever fall asleep in everything you do ensure that there is ihtisab ihtisab means what? expecting the reward from Allah You've just paid a bill, ensure there is ihtisab there. I'm expecting the reward from Allah. You've cooked a meal, my sister, you've cleaned your home that evening, ensure there is ihtisab. You've accommodated your spouse one way or another, you smiled in their face, there is ihtisab. Expect the reward from Allah Jalla Jalalu. You've bitten your tongue, although you really wanted to lash out, Ensure there is ihtisab. Every step of the way, ensure there is ihtisab. The second thing we can do is gather the family around an act of worship at least once a week. This is our principle that says our purpose of creation is worship. So worship Allah with your family at least once a week. And prove practically that it is worship that brings us together. So this could be salah that you do together occasionally. This could be a useful book that you read together. This could be a video that you watch on YouTube of some beneficial material. This is principle number one. Principle number two, Allah Jalla Jalaluhu said in Surah An-Nisa, chapter four of the Quran. By the way, this is coming under which category? Which of the broad categories is this coming under? Let's not forget the macro picture. Yeah, the principles before marriage. So notice, to see your marriage an act of worship, we gotta get that in check right now before we get married. To understand what marriage is, it's ibadah. Number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَأَخَذْنَ مِنْكُمْ مِيثَاقًا غَلِيظًا And they, meaning your wives, have taken from you a firm covenant. 
That's principle number two. They, meaning your wives, have taken from you a firm covenant. What is the key word in this ayah? Firm covenant. What is the firm covenant in reference to here? The covenant of? Of marriage. So again, this principle is not about something you necessarily do. It's about creating a shift in perception. That you see marriage as something hadim, something weighty, something worthwhile. Marriage is perhaps the most important thing you will do in your life from a legal perspective. Probably coming second place to death. Changes all sorts of rights and responsibilities and obligations the moment that contract is made. The wedding is different to the marriage. The wedding is that beautiful occasion when everyone is dressed nicely and there's beautiful food and there's a big cake and there's gifts and presents and uh, no boxed gifts, cheeky little messages and the rest of this. That's, that's called the wedding. The marriage, that is a mithaqalil. That is a solemn contract. That is a strong covenant. And that's different to the wedding. Just because it's a simple exchange, I marry you to so-and-so, and you say, Qabiltu, I accept. It takes you three seconds. Don't take it lightly. It doesn't detract from the weight of this marriage. All of a sudden, the moment you say, I accept, hundreds of rulings have now come into your life and have, have changed your existence and your relationship with Allah and the relationship with people because of that sentence that you uttered in one or two seconds. It's a firm contract. This expression of firm contract, firm, strong covenant, has only appeared in the Quran in three different passages in three different contexts. That's it. The first time it was used was in the context of the children of Israel, Banu Israel, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, We said to the children of Israel, do not transgress on the Sabbath. And we took from them a firm covenant. That's number one. The second appearance this makes in the Quran is when Allah Almighty said, And remember when we took the covenant from the Prophets. And from you, O Prophet Muhammad. And from Prophet Noah. Ibrahim, Abraham, and Moses, and Jesus, son of Mary, Allah said, And we took from them a firm covenant. That's the second appearance. And as for the third and final appearance that this expression makes in the Quran, is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the verse that we are studying, How can you take back the dowry that you've given your wife? Whilst one of you has gone into the other, and they have taken from you a firm covenant. Subhanallah. It is a relationship, therefore, of like none other. When Allah Almighty, the Great, the Most Powerful, is describing a worldly, earthly relationship as being strong, what type of relationship must it be? This is key for you and I to be aware of before we come into a marriage, to give it the weight it deserves. And so many petty problems are flushed out just by you remembering this is a very lofty relationship. And I give you a few narrations to demonstrate just how different this relationship is. 
and the stakes are high. Just as, just are the opportunities. The Prophet ﷺ made a dua to Allah. The hadith in Sunan al-Nasai on the authority of Abu Shuraih. The Prophet ﷺ made a dua to Allah and he said, Allahumma inni uharriju haqqa al-da'ifayni al-yateemi wal-mar'a. Oh Allah, I deem it very sinful that the rights of the two weak ones should not be safeguarded. The right of the orphans and the right of women. Oh Allah, I deem it highly sinful that the rights of the two weak ones are not safeguarded. The rights of orphans and the rights of women. So that's with respect to your wife. And then with respect to your husband, you will find similar narrations to show you it is a firm covenant. And that is why the Prophet ﷺ, when he bumped into the auntie of Al-Husayn ibn Mihsan, a companion. And she was an elder woman who required some assistance with matters, and the Prophet ﷺ helped her. And then when they were parting, he asked her a question. He said to her, are, are you married? And she said, I am. He said to her, كَيْفَ أَنْتِ مِنْهُ? Tell me, how are you with your husband? How do you behave? She said, La aluhu ya Rasulullahi Messenger of Allah, I try to give him everything he needs. Only those matters that I really cannot fulfill. He said to her, Fanduri, Aina anti minhu. Be very observant, he said to her, of how you are with him, because he will be your paradise or he will be your hellfire. SubhanAllah. It's not an average relationship. Ibn Majah narrates in his Sunan on the authority of Ibn Abi Awfa that when Mu'ad ibn Jabal arrived back at Medina and he saw the Prophet وسلم, he prostrated to him, he did sujood and he said to him, Ya Mu'ad, ma hada? Mu'ad, what is this? What are you doing? He said, O Messenger of Allah, I've just come back from Asham and I saw the Christians prostrating to their religious clergy so I thought we would like to do the same for you out of respect. He said to him, don't do that. Don't do that. But if I was to instruct any person to prostrate to another human being, I would have instructed the wives to prostrate to their husbands. If this was going to be the case, and it is not. And prostration, as Al-Munawi says, is of two types. There was a prostration of worship. That's not what we're speaking about here. That's only for Allah Jalla Jalalu. But then you have a prostration of what? Of respect, like the prostration of the angels to Adam السلام, that was not a prostration of worship, it was a prostration of what? Of respect. And the prostration of the brothers of Joseph and his family to Joseph, Yusuf السلام, was that a prostration of worship? No, prostration of, of respect. It was allowed in their sharia, it's not allowed in our sharia. So he's saying, if I was, don't prostrate to me, but if I was to permit someone to prostrate, i.e. out of respect to another human being, I would have instructed the wives to prostrate to their husbands because of, their, because of the magnitude of their right and the responsibility towards them. I'm giving you these narrations to tell you what. What's the point I'm making here, my dear brothers? It is a firm covenant, a relationship that needs to be taken seriously. Today, however, marriage, subhanAllah, has no longer become a solemn oath a covenant, a commitment. It's um, 
a non-binding non agreement between two consenting adults that you are free to walk away from whenever it's no longer convenient or a little bit annoying or becoming a nuisance. And the legal system is not supporting you much either. Responsible fathers are penalized and mothers are not encouraged to get married if they are on welfare. And sometimes marriages take place with the assumption that there's going to be a failure by the prenuptial agreement set up by husband and wife. And God has taken out the picture. Society has taken out the picture. Extended family, for the most part, is taken out the picture, except maybe what they do in the religious place of worship. But that's it. This is what marriage has been reduced to today. So the question that poses itself is, how come? What happened? Marriage was always a sacred institution since time immemorial. It was always honored by Muslims and non-Muslims. Why in the contemporary modern world has there been such a reductive approach towards marriage? How come? Actually, let me ask you, brothers, what do you think? What's changed in the 21st century? Or let's say in modernity? Hookup culture. The element of identicality. Ah, very good. What else? Social media. Ah, shamelessness. Very good. Feminism. Absolutely. Okay. The individual is more yeah, the individual is more important than the collective. Yeah, very good. I will share with you three reasons that seem to be behind the modern dismissive attitude towards marriage. And this is, I'm sure, part of the explanation, not the entire explanation. First of all, the rise of premarital relationships. Yeah? Sexual intercourse, to be specific before marriage has a tangible effect on the quality of a marriage when they eventually choose to tie the knot. And there are studies to show this. You have the study of Professor uh, Nicholas Wolfinger, a sociologist from Utah University. And he found the following in his study. He said that those who have only ever slept with their spouses i.e. during a marriage, reported to be experiencing very happy marriages. And they were reported to have the happiest of all marriages. They scored the highest. Those who have had no sexual encounter before their spouse. They were at the top of the pyramid. And he said the most dissatisfied and upset and most likely to fail in a marriage were women who had six to 10 sexual partners before they eventually got married. They were the lowest and most likely to divorce. And he said it was a trend between both men and women. If you look at the graph, the more sexual partners they had before marriage, the more likely it was that they were gonna end up in divorce later on in life. But it does not dip as low as it does with women. For some reason, his findings suggest that women are way more likely to be dissatisfied, discontent, and wanting to walk out of a marriage than men, even though it works both ways. And he says that perhaps it is very obvious that the more partners a person has had, the more likely the odds are that they are going to end up in a divorce later on in life. And other researchers like Andrew Cherlin from John Hopkins University, he's also a sociologist, he, he says uh, similar matters, that those people who showed no interest in sexual contact 
before marriage meant that they were more likely to offer commitment to a spouse when they did get married and therefore they were happier. Yeah, there's a lot of these studies to suggest that this is the relationship. So uh, between uh, premarital relations and the likelihood of a divorce later on in life. So I suggest that perhaps this is number one or one of the reasons that explains part of the dismissive attitude that people have towards marriage today because there's so much going on before marriage. The second reason is because of feminism, as one of the brothers he said. We cannot pretend as Muslims we are somehow immune to their narrative. It affects us just as it affects others. When you have the likes of Shayla Cronin, who says that the path to the liberation and freedom of a woman is by first abolishing the institution of marriage. Marlene Dixon, who also says that the role of a wife is how the subjugation of a woman is maintained. And Simone de Beauvoir, the infamous uh, feminist, who wrote in her book, The, the Second Sex, which is essentially the, the biblical reference for many feminists today, she writes that marriage is an alienating institution. So, of course, a lot of this is a reaction to their expressions of marriage and injustices that happen in this legal system and that social system, not in ours. So perhaps it's understandable why you're getting this extreme reaction. But the point is these waves of feminism, they do affect us. And it does detract from the status of marriage in the eyes of people. A third reason is, and none of you mentioned this one, what am I going to say? Huh? Ghero. Now, undoubtedly, satire, mockery, poking fun at marriage, joking about it. Yeah, and subhanAllah, more often than not, the husband will mock his wife, wife will mock her husband, people will mock the institution of marriage. They say it's a light-hearted joke, take it easy. To the level where now the, uh, uh, the, 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 the comedic trope of marriage is a couple who absolutely hate each other, right? And subhanAllah, we wonder why children will uh, say, I'm never going to get married. Have you, have you heard a child who says that before? I'm never going to get married. How come? Why, 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 do, why don't you want to get married? Why do you feel the need to uh, announce to the world your intention that you don't want to get married? How come? I mean, what is it? Has this child uh, studied the first, second, third, fourth waves of feminism and the philosophy? Uh, no, 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 you haven't done that. Maybe the child has studied the governing laws of marriage. No, the child hasn't done that. So why is the child saying, I'm never going to get married? How come? Simple reason. They've just made a quick observation. And all of the people who are married seem to absolutely hate one another. And all of the jokes about marriage is about hating your spouse. So why would the child want to get married? Why would the child want to do that? So joking, brothers, sisters, please take this seriously. Huh? So much garbage and nonsense is normalized via the vehicle of satire and mockery. Husband is mocking his wife. He's joking about her, you know. My wife is so stupid, she doesn't understand algebra. Uh, she's so boring, she never wants to watch cricket with me. Wife mocking her husband, you know. He's not the alpha male that I was expecting, right? Ever since he got married, his, his side handles are now flowing all over his waist, yeah, his love handles. Before that, tough man, but with marriage, it makes him a big fat softy. 
Yeah, then, and then husband is mocking his wife as well in, in public gatherings. My wife, they're always nagging. They're never happy. They always want more. What can I do? We can't keep up with them. And then, and then husbands are also mocking their wife, speaking about how boring his wife is. And she's always on her phone. You know, God, this is what marriage does. We were always speaking to another. We got married. She's now always on her phone. What message are you sending out to the kids when they hear that? Right? And then the classic joke, right? of a husband and wife planning an outing that does not include their spouse because the spouse is so boring. Can't wait to get away, right? To do something adventurous and exciting because my spouse is so boring. What message are you sending to your children when they hear that? Really? And by the way, these jokes are far more offensive to women than they are to men, especially in our society because of the amount of bombardment that our women are receiving, that you as a homemaker, you've had to sacrifice all of your dreams and ambitions. That's what society is telling her. Then she gets home, and we are adding and compounding to that. You're just a homemaker. What do you know at the end of the day? It's, it's hurtful. It's damaging. It has real consequences, brothers. So watch what you say. And what upsets me more is when you see our practicing brothers, sometimes our mashayikh, our teachers, who are circulating some of these <laughs> jokes about marriage. Any one of the brothers who's delivering a, a seminar, we won't mention name or city, or delivering a class. You know, this is the Islamic method of coaching for marriage and all of these big titles. And every now and then there'll be a joke about marriage, you know, to lighten up the mood and get people laughing and concentrating again. But at the expense of marriage? And he will say things like, you know, sisters, always keep a passport-sized photo of your husband in your wallet. Why? Because every time you go through a tough experience in your life, you take out that photo and you look at it. And you say, if I can deal with that, then I can deal with anything else in life. People laugh and joke. You know, it's lighthearted, apparently. What message are you sending? Or this other one, that one of our... Mashayikh, may Allah preserve him, circulated recently. Maybe it was a, a private group and a brother who is going to explain to us the three rings of marriage. Have you seen this one, right? The three rings of marriage. And he's writing on a whiteboard. The first ring of marriage, this is the engagement ring. And then the second ring of marriage, this is the wedding ring. And then the third ring of marriage, this is suffering. Tayyip, well, really, honestly, what, what message are you sending? Why would I want to be part of that? And what is sad is that this is happening at a time when the opposite of marriage is being glorified and enshrined within law. Homosexuality, lesbianism, promiscuity, sexual experimentation is glorified, magnified, encouraged, enshrined within law. And then the only halal outlet that we have to release ourselves emotionally, physically, is marriage. That only door that we have, we're knocking it down through our jokes. And then you wonder why, my kid, Yaqi, subhanAllah, doesn't want to get married. Delaying, 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 delaying. Why? Because it's not appealing to them. It's not exciting anymore to get married. Why? So brothers and sisters, why is marriage sacred? Why is marriage sacred? Because Allah made it sacred. Because Allah told us that it's sacred. So when you joke about it, what message are you saying about yourself? You know that Allah has made it sacred, yet you still find it easy to joke about something that Allah deems solemn. 
And then you will always get the exact same response. Ya akhi, we're just being lighthearted. Why are you taking everything so seriously? It's just a joke. I get that. But you're still wrong. I, honestly, I really get it. But it's wrong. Because as Muslims, we don't believe, like we do here in the West, that comedy enjoys certain privileges that other type of discourse doesn't enjoy. You know, with comedy, you can, it's, a, it's a little bit, of, a bit more of a free-for-all. As Muslims, we don't believe that. Comedy is also within the parameters of religion, like every other type of discourse. And even if we were to say that comedy has certain special privileges, those privileges do not extend to those things that Allah has made sacred. And marriage is one of those things, and Allah Jalla Jalaluhu has what? Has made sacred. Don't joke about it and don't mock it. I like the words of James J. Sexton, who was interviewed by a uh, Sean Inning. James Sexton, he is a, a divorce lawyer who's been in the field for about 20 years. And Sean Inning, in the interview, he says to him, what advice do you have for people who want to get married? And he said three words. He said, take it seriously. If you want to reword that in Arabic, what would you say? They take, they've taken from you a firm covenant. He said, take it seriously. And then he said something interesting, baffling at first. He said, don't think of marriage any differently to how you would think to the purchase of a car. How come? He said, unfortunately, some people pay more attention to the buying of their car than they do when they come into marriage. And they do more research into their car than they do into their spouse and the institution of marriage. And then he gives an example. He says, if you were to ask a average young man, what is your ideal car? You will have it today. He will say either Ferrari, he will say Lamborghini. But then if you say to that young man that this car will be the first and last car that you will have to the rest of your life, all of a sudden the analysis now is a little bit different. Because the kind of car that you want when you're 20 or 30, he says, is a little bit different to the car that you want when you've got one or two kids. Right? He says, take it seriously. Take it seriously. He is your paradise or hell, my sister. And my brother, Allah says, they have, your wives have taken from you a firm covenant. Take it seriously. Quick question. What are some of the manifestations of people who don't take marriage seriously, who do the opposite of this principle? What modern day examples do we have? I'll give you a few very quickly. Those who are throwing around the word of divorce left, right and center. Like today, I was in a marriage case, and I said to her, how many times has your husband divorced you? She said, I have lost count. Triple talaq, quadruple talaq, uppercuts, hooks, everything coming my way. I've lost count. She said, so many. And he only does it in sets of three. Triple talaq each time. Is this a person who's taken the covenant of oath, the covenant of marriage, as serious and weighty? And similarly, a woman who's constantly threatening, I'm going to apply for a khula, I'm going to apply for a khula. Whilst this is a valid door that's open for us when needed, but constantly throwing about in this disrespectful manner shows that you have understood that this is a firm covenant. That's one example. Example number two, unfortunately, some of the dodgy Sharia councils that are out there here in the UK who guarantee that we can separate your wife from you in 48 hours. Just pay the fee. One sister recently who said that I was divorced from my husband just by email. This Sharia council, she said, no face-to-face, -face, no Zoom, no nothing. By email, just communication. 
And it was done. They gave me the divorce certificate. Is this a Sharia council that understands that this is a firm covenant that you've just broken down? How? Or a Sharia council that say we don't need to speak to the husband. A wife has applied for a khulah. They say we don't need to contact the husband. Just let us hear your version of the story. What about his version? Next thing he knows, he's married to another man. What happened? My wife is married to another man. Yeah, but we've, we've divorced her. Why didn't you reach out to me? We don't need to. How? Allah says, we've taken from you a firm covenant. How can you dissolve it in that way? This is a firm covenant. That's another example. Another example could be, uh, another example could be the interfering in people's marriages to break them down. The Prophet said, any woman or any person who incites a woman against her husband is not from us. How can you interfere in a relationship in this way to separate them from one another when this is a mithaq, a firm covenant that you're interfering with? Right? Another example could be of somebody who comes into marriage and they don't know the mutual rights and responsibilities. They just fell in love, so they, they quickly got married. But they don't know the rights of a husband and the rights of a wife and the expectations and the roles and what Allah wants from both. You do a lot more due diligence when you take out the mobile phone contract. What about this firm covenant? We have not taken it seriously. These are four or five examples of how this principle is not applied. Finally, putting this principle in practice, in the remainder of the minute or two that we have together, uh, one way could be to raise awareness. So parents, speak with your children about marriage and use positive terms. Use exciting terms. Uh, tell them about the good things that marriage offers. Prepare them for the weight, the weighty contract that's ahead of them, that comes with a responsibility, but comes with an enjoyment and a happiness. Show them that. Show them the bright sides of, your, of marriage through your behavior, through your example, and through your words. Teachers with your students, parents with your children, anybody who is under your influence, raise awareness about the importance of marriage and the enjoyment of marriage and the weight of marriage. The second thing we can do is to uh, make a commitment to complete the series. We said this series would be a little bit long. Make a commitment to complete it. To show Allah that I am taking this firm covenant seriously and my commitment is that I will complete the study of this firm covenant as a minimum. And the last thing we can do is end all forms of mockery that is directed at the institution of marriage. هذا وصلى الله على نبينا محمد والحمد لله رب